0: Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So, if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to Come Follow Me with Book of Mormon Central for the Book of Mormon year. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And we're going to be dealing with Enos, Jerem, Omni, and the Words of Mormon, books that sometimes are just passed over because they're these short little books, but there's an incredible amount of of stuff here. Which
1: which is interesting because they do often get skipped over. It creates this uh, vacuum in people's minds of trying to figure out who exactly are the Mulekites? How do they fit in with the Nephites and the Lamanites and the movements of the people going from Nephite to Zarahemlin? Oh, and what about the plates? There are the large plates, the small plates, the brass plates, the plates of Mormon, the... where do these all fit in, and how? How, and a lot of people just end up not caring, when in reality, if you if you dive in deeply into Omni and Words of Mormon and start to make sense of these, it actually provides a means whereby you can you can find principles and doctrines more easily in the rest of the book because you're not so confused.
0: So we're going to cover that today. So Tyler and I have been collaborating since about 2011. And we started a group called the Virtual Scriptures Group, and we've put together a lot of visual resources to help people make better sense of what's going on with not just the scriptures, but also the scriptural world. And we're going to start bringing in some of those visualizations to help you get a sense of what's going on. Like, where did the plates come from? And later, like Book of Mormon maps, we even actually have some models of the Jerusalem temple that we can bring in to help you visualize what was the reality that brought forth these scriptures that we all love and hold so dear.
1: So, you can find those resources at virtualscriptures.org, and we'll have links to those as well, in this, in this and subsequent videos when we use those resources to help you. We're going to begin with the Book of Enos. Can you imagine what it would be like to be uh, the next writer in line, and knowing the, the line of prophets before you? Lehi was the first one to write prophetically, and then your uncle Nephi, pretty amazing prophet, and then your father Jacob, and now it's your turn, how do you feel? You're probably, probably looking at what's been written before you, thinking, uh, one of these guys isn't like the others, and, and your heart kind of goes out to Enos in this effort of trying to add something meaningful, and yet, quite frankly, for, for many of us in the Book of Mormon audience, Enos is somebody who we can probably relate to really well because if you're like me, and I'll speak for Taylor, if you haven't seen the Lord like Lehi, Nephi, and Jacob have in vision, 2nd Nephi 11, Nephi tells you that he and his brother have seen the Lord, and we know Lehi saw the Lord from clear back in chapter 1 of 1st Nephi, then Enos becomes quite relatable to us as we say, how do I how do I be a good saint moving forward without the outpouring of heavenly uh, visions?
0: My testimony of the Book of Mormon is very, very simple. And it relates to what we're talking about here. It's that the Book of Mormon is the most literarily beautiful, doctrinally truthful, and everlastingly applicable book the world has ever seen. The Book of Venus itself actually backs up what I'm trying to to say here. And I love Enos because even as a young man, I felt like Enos, like, I, I was inspired by the prophets. I wanted to feel like I was embraced in God's love, that I had a remission of my sins. And I feel like Enos is this incredible model for how we too could trust God and trust the words of just parents and leaders who've taught us in the language of the Lord. I mean, this is the first verse, and I want you to talk about this a little bit here. Jacob has taught Enos his language in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is significant because we all can look in our lives and say, we actually probably have all been similarly taught by parents or loved ones or leaders who are just. And actually, it's an interesting word. Just um, has a covenantal context, meaning people who teach you covenants, and covenantal language, and how to be in covenant with God. And you were making this really interesting comment about these two words, and there's a little connecting word you were talking to me about. Yeah,
1: look at this. So, he he tells us that his father was a just man, or a righteous, covenant-keeping man. And he is so grateful for that, because why? What did his dad do? He taught me in his language, in my father's language. Now, there are a couple of ways to interpret this, and I don't know exactly what Enos meant when he wrote that, but it seems to imply that he's probably not saying, wow, I am sure glad that my dad taught me Hebrew, because that's the spoken tongue of the Nephites. The reality is, is if you're born into a family, you, you're raised speaking that language, and I, I don't know that Enos would make a big deal of, wow, I'm glad dad taught me this, this vernacular tongue that everybody around me speaks it could be that he's referring to a language that is much more uh, important as far as we're concerned with reference to the Book of Mormon, because in Mosiah chapter 1, we find out that the brass plates were written in Egyptian. We know that Nephi's writing in Egyptian. Later on, Moroni is going to tell us that he's writing in Reformed Egyptian. So, you have this, this language skill that is being passed down father to son of the record keepers, to be able to read and write in Egyptian, which would not have been simple for for Hebrew-speaking and writing people. It's it's a step up. Now, those of us today reading this in the Book of Mormon, some of you might be thinking to yourself, that's good trivia, but really, who cares? The reality is, when you open up the Bible, or even when you open up the Book of Mormon, written in kind of archaic English, this is not, the language, in every case, that that children are raised hearing and speaking, and so, it can be very, very difficult to understand, kind of like reading Old Testament Hebrew prophets, like Isaiah. It's it's hard to understand, and it means that parents have the opportunity to teach their children after the manner of these, these words that aren't in our common tongue. So, in my mind, when I read this, I put on my cap as a father and think, wow, I have a responsibility to teach my children in the language of the scriptures so that they can unlock the power that will help them recognize God's uh, revelations in their own life and show them the fount from which they can receive a remission of their sins, to go back to Nephi. So, I love the fact that Enos is acknowledging right out of the gate the same thing Nephi acknowledged. Having been born of goodly parents, therefore, having been taught somewhat in all the learning of my father, I think that has to include somewhere the ability to interact with and understand scripture. Now, look at this next part. And also, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Can you stop and think about what would happen to a child, who was only ever nurtured, never admonished. They were only ever told how wonderful they were, given lots of hugs, lots of encouragement, lots of propping up, lots of support, only nurturing. That child's not going to have a great, a great adulthood. And then, can you think of what happens with a child who only ever gets admonished? He's only ever disciplined, or she's only ever corrected, and admonished, and told what she ought to be doing better, or differently, or or for the first time. For me, my favorite word here for parents, for teachers, is the and, because the Lord does both of these with us, and you watch Jesus working with his disciples in the New Testament he's got a beautiful balance between these two, and uh, this is a way that you you raise children, that you teach classes, that you see the prophets working with the people, Um, you get the beautiful balance between the two. And now, we're ready to to go to verse 2, which is amazing to me, that Enos has the stage set by his father, And we would assume by his mother as well, but verse 2, I will tell you of the wrestle which I had before God, before I received a remission of my sins. Often, we look at the book of Enos and think that it's this great story about revelation, and it is, there's no question about that, but this was not Enos embarking on a journey to seek revelation just for figuring out how to hear the, the voice of the Lord, or to receive answers to prayers. It's a story about Enos, who now seems to have a prophetic mantle of some sort, and he probably feels inadequate, and he needs to know that he's okay with the Lord. He wants a remission of his sins. He wants to know about his condition before God, similar to Joseph Smith going into the sacred grove. He simply wanted to know if he was going to be able to find forgiveness
0: for his soul. What I love that Tyler's taught here is that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. And what Tyler's modeling here is that sometimes we just need to slow down a bit and ask ourselves, what are the little details that are going on in the Book of Mormon that help me to better understand the Lord's purposes? And we want to point out a couple of interesting things that Enos is trying to convey to us, I mean, this is his story of salvation that he's putting into the text, but he uses a lot of really cool and symbolic language. And if you consider, he says he goes out to hunt. So, there's all this hunting language. He uses phrases like, beasts. And you might look at, how does he describe his own experience when he feels the remission of sins? In fact, if we look down at verse 3, He says this, I went to hunt beasts in the forest, and the words which I had often heard my father speak concerning eternal life, and the joy of the saints sunk deep into my heart. Now, if you're a hunter, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get an arrow to sink deep into the heart of an animal and slay the beast. And it's interesting that Enos realizes he is the beast. His fallen nature needs to have that arrow of God's light and love just sink deep in his heart. And listen to this interesting thing. And my soul hungered. Okay, when people go out hunting, particularly in Enos's day, it's because they're hungry. They didn't have grocery stores. You just kind of go find whatever you want in the cold aisle or the freezer aisle. He had to go out with patience and skill and labor to go find food so he could survive. But what he really discovered was it wasn't just feeding his body that mattered. He needed to feed his soul, and he needed to slay the fallen man, the beast, that all of us actually have, and let the words that he'd learned from his father and his mother penetrate deep into his heart.
1: Let me just comment on that one. Um, one, of, one of the incredible principles here is what it was that changed that from hunting beasts to hunting the beast, the natural man. Something shifted because he went out with a physical need and ended up hunting something very differently. Why? Notice the wording in verse 3. The words which I had often heard my Father speak, concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints, sunk deep into my heart. Uh, Elder Neal Maxwell once said something along the lines of some of history's greatest sermons will be preached from the pulpit of memory to an audience of one. And I think that finds no greater um, fulfillment than in a family setting, where children are raised, and if they hear words often about the joy of the saints and and the eternal life that is promised, that that can be registered in the mind, and even if that child wanders for days, months, years, decades, there will be a time when, when maybe the moment's right, and they're engaged in something, and it will create this moment where, as Taylor's talking, their soul will hunger, and they will, they will reach out for that, for that sustaining hand.
0: So, the scriptures, like I said, are just so beautiful and doctrinally truthful. We can apply them to our own lives. I mean, we live in a day that uh, I don't typically go hunting, and my wife is so proud I come home with uh, venison. Uh, I usually just drive down to the local market, and she's pretty impressed if I get home on time. I'm a bit of a social person, and I always see people from my ward, and getting the milk often takes me 45 minutes. The point here is that our lives, in some ways, have become really easy, Right, we don't have to go work hard to go find the food we need. We just go to the grocery store. From a spiritual standpoint, are we just going to the grocery store and expecting that we can find pre-packaged testimonies we can just warm up in the microwave? Somebody else provide it for us, we just plop it in. Or are we really thinking to ourselves, are we putting the time and effort in, like Enos did, to listen to the words of inspired parents, inspired leaders, inspired friends, who've admonished us and nurtured us in the love of God? And then we have to realize that you know, if I put in the patience and the skill and the time, I too can have an experience like Enos. Now, what's really interesting here is the ancient writers used some very powerful ways of expressing stories. And sometimes the way they would tell the story is to get us thinking about other stories that relate to the one we're reading. And one way they do this is by signaling with names. For example, Jacob, the father of Enos, was actually named after the ancient patriarch Jacob and he's the one who had his name changed to Israel, and he had 12 sons, and that's called the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, what's really interesting is Jacob, the Old Testament patriarch, had a very powerful experience, very similar to Enos's, and it's back in Exodus, sorry, Genesis chapter 32, and here is what it says, and Jacob, this is the Old Testament patriarch, was left alone. Now, think about Enos in the Book of Mormon. He's all alone, and there wrestled a man with Jacob until the breaking of the day wait a second, wrestling? Our patriarch Jacob, he wrestled as well? And this phrase, a man, actually really is referencing God, that even our pa- our ancestor Jacob also wrestled with God, looking for something. And eventually what happened is he was given an enormous blessing, and God said, uh, it says that Jacob was blessed in verse 29. And what happens here with the Enos story, that just like his ancient ancestor, the patriarch, Enos is wrestling before God to receive a remission of his sins so that he can receive blessings. But it's not enough for him to receive blessings. Once he's received that remission, he realizes, I want other people to experience this. And now, just for fun, the word Enos in Hebrew, and I get this from my friend, uh, Dr. Matt Bowen. He's a religion professor at BYU-Hawaii. The word Enos in Hebrew happens to mean man, man. And it's actually the word that's actually used back in Genesis when Jacob is wrestling with a man who is God. And we know that God is a man of holiness. And so, in some ways, we might wonder, did Jacob, Enos's father, name Enos after the real man that we all want to be like, and that we all have to wrestle with to become more like him?
1: Fun stuff. Now, let's talk timing for a moment it tells you that he is, in verse 4, he says, after telling you that his soul, soul hungered, he's no longer hunting for beasts, he's, he's hunting for that natural man-beast inside. I kneeled down before my maker, and I cried unto him in mighty prayer and supplication for mine own soul. And all the day long did I cry unto him, and yea, when the night came, I did still raise my voice high that it reached the heavens. Often, this will happen, where Here's a timeline, and time is ticking forward, and these might be minutes, they might be hours, they might be weeks, months, or years. Here's the point. Enos's heart is soft, his soul is hungering, he is desiring, he wants nothing more, but God doesn't give him the answer there. Why? God doesn't give him the answer in mid-morning, he doesn't give him the answer at noon, he doesn't give him the answer in the early afternoon. He's he's probably up and hunting, praying, praying, hunting. He he's he's wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. And God is not giving him the answer at these points. The question is why? Why delay the answer until the end of the day? Stop and think about it. The answer when it comes here, after this long, drawn-out wrestle, how does Enos feel about the answer here, compared to if he had just gotten a quick answer here? If he kneels down first thing in the morning when the thought first crosses his mind, and the Lord fills his, his soul with this sweet forgiveness, it's going to be sweet, there's no question about it. But based on my own experience, of sometimes having to wrestle and wrestle and wrestle and wrestle long past when I thought it was reasonable makes the answer incredibly beautiful. Just really briefly, uh, years ago, 10 years ago, when my family and I had the opportunity to move from Logan to Provo. Um, from teaching at the Institute up at Utah State, to now transfer down back in 2010 to the uh, Department of Ancient Scripture at BYU. Um, We got that answer pretty clearly, as a family, collectively, all of us, that we needed to make that move, and that answer came in, in January of 2010, knowing that we would have to be there for fall semester of 2010, in August. And we set everything in place to sell the house. We priced it right, according to a couple of realtors. We fixed it up, everything was good. And that home did not sell in March or April, like we had anticipated, and everybody had promised us. We lowered the price again. It didn't sell in June. Lowered it, did more fix-up. It didn't sell in July. It didn't sell in the first part of August. And I thought something was totally broken in me, or in the process. But, I wanted the home to sell, but instead of that, God sent two angels. He, he sent my high priest group leader who said, uh, his name's Todd Moon, who said, Tyler, my parents Kay and Mava Moon live down in Orem. I've told them about your situation, and they want you to be able to live in their basement during the week, and then you can come back home to Cache on the weekend, um, so that you can begin teaching down at BYU. The answer came from the Lord, but not in a sold home, when I wanted it. The answer came through through angels, Kay and Maeve Moon, and, and their son Todd, who opened this door for me, and then it was months later, in December, when the home finally sold. I will just say this, I learned some things, not only about God, in those months, that the home wasn't selling, and I thought it should have, But I learned some things about me, and I learned some things about my wife, and about my children, and God stretched all of us, and he used that opportunity to strengthen our whole family. I think the same thing's happening with Enos here. He's not getting a quick, easy answer. It's it's hard fought, it's wrestled, like Jacob, all night long with the Lord. It's wrestled so that when it finally does come, Oh, how sweet it is to him and he'll never forget it, just like I'll never forget that experience because of what I learned about God and his goodness uh, back
0: in 2010. That word, wrestling, is really a key word here. Uh, I'm a lazy human. I'd rather not have to wrestle to make things happen. I just want it all just like, just pull out my app and there's, there's a solution, there's an app for that. And, that's not God's plan. And like Tyler said, I've had many moments in my life where I had a plan for myself and I was more interested in my plan than actually letting God's plan unfold. And God's plan actually required, he wanted me to wrestle and work and learn and become. And only then did I realize fully how powerful the atonement was. I got really happy talking about the atonement of Jesus Christ and his love. But then when it came down to actually really experiencing it, I'm like, wait, 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 you're saying I have to suffer and struggle to fully feel? Like, can't I just talk about this in Sunday school and I just gotta go home after church and like call it good? And God had to teach me line up online that, no, Taylor, there's actually a larger plan here. And in the long run, even though there's going to be some amazing plot twists here, this will lead to incredible joy. So,
1: another Elder Maxwell concept for you. He said on another occasion, with regarding matters of timing, he said, it's usually easier to say, Lord, thy will be done, than it is to say, Lord, thy timing be done. And if you consider it, he said, how ironic is it that you and I who wear wristwatches try to counsel he who governs cosmic clocks on matters of timing. So, there's, there's a beautiful principle here to, to trust him more, trust his, that he, he knows what he's doing, and he knows how to stretch us and give us, give us the, the experiences we need to grow and become who we need to become. He is far more interested in your eternal capacities to grow and, and, and your potentials, than he is in your current state of ease and comfort notice the response that came, verse 5, there came a voice unto me, saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. Often, by the way, we'll read that, and we'll think, oh, so Enos isn't terribly unlike Nephi before him, and Jacob getting these heavenly manifestations, because now he's getting this this heavenly voice coming down to him, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. If you want to to look carefully at verse 10, it says, while I was thus struggling in the spirit, behold, the voice of the Lord came into my mind again. You could connect, maybe, the word voice in 10 with the word voice in 5. I'm not sure that it was an audible voice from heaven in verse 5. I think when he says, it came into my mind again, implies that you and I can relate an awful lot to Enos, that sometimes, uh, Elder Bednar has made a big deal of this recently, that sometimes we we seek these huge revelations, we want to see the angels, and we want to have the, the heavens opened, and, and be showered with these big, profound visions, when in reality, if you're doing the best you can to keep the covenants you've made, there's a promise given to you every week, that you will always have his spirit to be with you, as long as you're doing those three things, the best, you're striving to do the best you can with those three things in the sacrament prayer over the bread. You'll always have his spirit to be with you. The voice of the Lord will come into your mind constantly, to the point where you won't even recognize that it's revelation, because you'll just think it's just you thinking. It's kind of like error. How many times today have you stopped and thought to yourself, wow, I am so grateful for oxygen and air? You probably haven't done that very much, but the reality is is you're immersed in it. It's constantly around you, and you don't think about it. It's probably, for many of you, like Revelation, where the Lord is guiding you. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times where you're seeking big things like Enos was here but sometimes we we look beyond the mark without realizing that God is guiding us every step of the way.
0: This is such a really beautiful and amazing chapter, and I love what Enos has modeled for us, right? In some ways, he's the everyman. He represents all of us, but he also is named possibly after the man of holiness. And look at what happens after he's received his beautiful experience of feeling God's love. And having this unshakable faith. Verse 6, I knew that God could not lie, wherefore my guilt was swept away. Later, in verse 11, he says, I heard these words, my faith began to be unshaken in the Lord, and I prayed unto him with many long strugglings. Now, again, when you're wrestling, it's a struggle, it's not this simple thing, and notice that when you are embraced in the love of God, you have this automatic and immediate feeling to actually want to give it away to everybody else. In fact, it's as if, like God, you want to be doing his work with him. And notice the progression. Enos first worries about his own soul, and then it's about those he knows the best. It's the Nephites. He worries about their souls, and God basically makes a covenant with Enos. As long as the Nephites keep my covenantal instructions, which are the commandments, they will prosper in the land. Otherwise, the land will be cursed. And then the Lamanites, who'd caused so many problems for the Nephites. Listen to, here's Enos. He has that pure love that we hear about Moroni talking about, where even your enemies, you can love them with a pure love, even as God loves all of his children. And what does he want for them? He wanted for the Lamanites to be recovered. And Enos, like the patriarchs, like the covenantal patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who received these amazing promises from God, received this covenant. That God was going to bring forth the words that Enos and others had preserved to the Lamanites at some future day, and the Lamanites would be invited back into the covenant, and that is actually happening right Right now now. in our day, and we get to be part of it with the missionary work. It's amazing. So, look at this pattern that's
1: unfolding here on the page as you study for yourself, as you dig in and you discover truths that that we aren't talking about, and that you're not going to hear in Sunday school. Uh, things that can, can distill on your soul. Look at the pattern. He starts with, cleanse the inner vessel, start here, try to be clean, with his own soul. Once the Lord has spoken to him about his own soul, his next layer out is, the neighbors, love thy neighbors thyself, the neighbors closest to him, his, the, the people of the Nephites. So, verse 9, he's, like he said, he's pleading for the Nephites. Once the Lord comforts his soul regarding the the Nephites, he then reaches out, love your enemies, and he loves them, as Taylor said. Look at the bottom part of verse 11. He refers to them as, my brethren, the Lamanites. Once you've got a promise and assurance from the Lord on that, now he reaches out even further to the records, because it's through the records that you now, it's not, That he cares so much about plates. Plates are just made of gold or or metals. The plates have no eternal lasting value in the eternities. The fact is, is he recognizes the ability that those plates are going to have to bless people, children of God, through who knows how many different times and lands in the future, and he's now pleading with the Lord to preserve the record so that it can be a means of of bringing people back into the covenant with God. So, there's a nice little pattern for you. Rather than fretting and worrying and stressing over things out at these layers, start there first, then go with your family and you you work out. There's a nice little progression there of the principles that that Enos shows us. Yeah.
0: Lord, is it I, (laughs) right? Start right there. Start and usually there the answer is no, yes. And I actually really don't like it when God tells me that. I'm always hoping he's going to say, actually, Taylor, somebody else is the problem right now. But it usually starts right here with me. Yeah, we
1: want the Lord to just pat <laughs> us on the back and say, no, you're doing wonderful. Give the nurture and don't change a thing. You're doing yeah. great. When in reality, when we're honest, we'll go to the Lord and he'll He'll give us things to work on, but he'll also encourage us. Nurture and admonition is, is alive and well. Okay, so now let's let's turn our attention to the book of Jerem for a moment. Jerem, he inherits these small plates from his father Enos, and he feels even more overwhelmed than than probably Enos did, based on what he says here. Look at verse 2, and as these plates are small, and as these things are written for the intent of the benefit of our brethren the Lamanites, their key audience, which by the way, think about that. the Lamanites were told in the book of Jerem and Omni, the and in the last part of Enos, that the Lamanites want to kill, and destroy, and do everything they can to disrupt the Nephites. And yet, here are these prophets who are modeling what it means to, to love your enemies, and to do good to those who despitefully use you, or persecute you. Look at how Jerem describes them he's writing the plates for the intent of the benefit of our brethren, the Lamanites. But then he gives the clarification, but it must needs be that I write a little, but I shall not write the things of my prophesying, nor my revelations. For what could I write more than my fathers have written? Have have they not revealed the plan of salvation? I say unto you, yea, and this suffices me." Jerem's conclusion is, if you read the first 138 pages of the Book of Mormon, you're getting the plan of salvation, I'm I'm not going to be able to really add much to that.
0: And consider the humility. Absolutely. He's had prophecies in Revelation, and he's like, "It's this is not about me. This is not about me getting published, and look how famous I am, because I have this brand new insight on Jesus Christ. It's, you know, just follow the prophets. Yeah. And he wants to be a window instead of, like, the wall, a window to God. There
1: you go. And in his day, we have to understand, sometimes I think we get this notion that there was the prophet Nephi, who then gives the plates to Jacob, his brother, who then gives them to his son Enos, to his son Jerem, and those are the prophets. If you look back in Enos, verse 22, there were exceedingly many prophets among us. And the people were stiff-necked people, hard to understand. I guess what I'm saying is, is the society and the population is probably much bigger than you give it credit for. When Enos, at this point, you know, 179 years after Lehi left Jerusalem, he's saying, There's ex- there are an exceedingly many, uh, or there are exceedingly many prophets among us, means that here's Jerem, he's got the plates, and he has to write, but he, he's like, there, there's a lot of good stuff going on, but there's also a lot of struggles. And you're seeing the wrestles and the struggles to just keep the Nephites safe in the rest of his book. And it seems to be more of the, the focus of how he's going around preaching to, to keep the people in the
0: way, which
1: brings us to the Book of Omni.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, at this point, there's just so many little things that are going on here that are really interesting, and we're going to spend a few minutes mapping this out because, again, this is one of those books that people often just like, you know, kind of read this, read through this, and there's little details that actually help set up other things that are going on in the Book of Mormon, and these little books are actually bridges between the small plates and the large plates. In fact, the Words of Mormon are the major bridge that connect these two things together.
1: It's fascinating here because if you if you just do some quick math, I'll let we'll let you do this on your own. But here you have five authors in one short book. It's covering three pages of, of scripture. And you compare what you get in three pages with what you got in the previous 140 pages to contrast it with four authors. Nephi, Jacob, Enos, and Jerem. You can just do a little little contrast, which tells you, hmm, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of doctrine, and a lot of the plan of salvation revealed here, not as much here. In fact, in some cases, you get one verse, or two verses, and they're not really telling you much at all. Omni happens to be our only author in the book who uses the word wicked, or or to, to self-declare his, his unrighteousness, and we don't know if he's just being overly um, humble or meek, but in verse 1 it says, that Omni received the record from his father Jerem. He t- tells you in verse 2, but behold, I of myself am a wicked man, and I have not kept the statutes and the commandments of the Lord as I ought to have done. But gratefully, regardless of what his, his true righteousness was from a heavenly perspective, he taught his son how to read and write in Egyptian, to be able to continue this, this tradition that's been passed down from the fathers before him. Passing him on down to Chemish he's he's the one verse wonder. Verse 9, now I write what few things I write in the same book with my brother, for behold, I saw the last which he wrote, that he wrote it with his own hand, and he wrote it in the day that he delivered them unto me, and after this manner we keep the records, for it is according to the commandments of our fathers, and I make an end. People laugh at him, but the reality is, is he's keeping the commandments of the fathers, he's preserving the records, he's he's going to pass that on now to his son, he got it from his brother, he's going to pass on to his son, who gives you only a couple of verses, 10, 11, 12. Um, Now, 12, or 10 and 11, then 12, kicks kicks in. This is where our story gets interesting. So, it's here where Amalekai first starts mentioning significant elements involving geography. So, this is a good place for us to pause for a moment and uh, give a, give a little bit of geographical context for what's happening in the rest of the Book of Mormon to, to help us make sense of this.
0: So, the small section of the Book of Mormon, Enos, Jerem, Omni, Words of Mormon, which can be passed over are very, very crucial for understanding. And what we want to share with you today Are some free resources that are available, uh, maps and uh, geographical resources, to help you make visual sense of what is happening in the Book of Mormon. Now, to make it totally clear, Jesus saves. Geography was not revealed to save anybody, and we try to be neutral, and what we've built are some resources based on the internal references in the Book of Mormon. We didn't go out anywhere on earth and look find, oh, I wonder where this would actually match somewhere in the Americas. Even though it's an interesting question, we just stuck with the internal geographical consistencies that are going on in the Book of Mormon. And actually, a lot of this was Tyler. He has really paid the price, and we're on what version of this map? This is version 42. So, we make this as a supplemental useful resource, and as we get further into the Book of Mormon, we'll be using this to kind of just show the relational connection of what's going on in the Book of Mormon, before we get into modeling that, we want to spend just a minute talking about something that the Brethren, an official essay they put out on Book of Mormon geography. So, if you,
1: if you look up Gospel Topics essays, and, and so Gospel Topics, Book of Mormon geography, you'll be able to pull up this essay from the Church. Uh, we want to read just a couple of the paragraphs, the, the last three paragraphs, because this really encapsulates the, the sentiment here the Church does not take a position on the specific geographic locations of Book of Mormon events in the ancient Americas. President M. Russell Ballard, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, reminded members that, quote, the Book of Mormon is not a textbook on topography. Speculation on the geography of the Book of Mormon may mislead instead of enlighten. Such a study can be a distraction from its divine purpose." Individuals may have their own opinions regarding Book of Mormon geography, and other such matters, about which the Lord has not spoken. However, the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles urge leaders and members not to advocate those personal theories in any setting or manner that would imply either prophetic or Church support for those theories. All parties should strive to avoid contention on these matters it's fascinating, because some people are so excited about different specific geographic models, that every time they open the Book of Mormon, that's what they're looking for, as as proof for their particular model. When the, the leaders of the Church are saying, let's not have it be about the geography, and let's not fight, let's not have contention about where the book took place. And the final paragraph is speaking of the book's history and geography, President Russell M. Nelson taught. Interesting as these matters may be, study of the Book of Mormon is most rewarding when one focuses on its primary purpose to testify of Jesus Christ.
0: By comparison, all other issues are incidental. Again, we share that as this is a supplemental resource. We're not trying to advocate anything. As instructors, we're trying to provide structure for the learning experience. And we hope that you find this useful, and we're going to spend a few minutes talking about how the geography in the Book of Mormon, if you understand a bit of it, can help lessen confusion. So,
1: so let me give you the context for why we've even done this. Uh, At BYU, we have to stay um, in our in our products that we're producing like this we have to stay geography neutral. So though this looks like a beautiful map that actually this place would exist somewhere on the world it's a made up map. To here's what happens. There are over 550 specific references to geographical names and places and things in the book of Mormon. Often students so so I teach a lot of students every semester and every time you come to a description of geography, often what happens is the students just zone that out. They, they, they think it's unimportant, they just skip over it and move on. When in reality, if you can go into the book and make sense relationally of these different geographical features and locations, all of a sudden certain truths, certain teachings, certain doctrines, symbols that point us to Christ, can start to become more clear. So, it's not that geography is completely unimportant. If that were the case, Mormon and the other writers would have put nothing of geography in here, but they did. The problem is, is when you take these little elements and elevate them to the most important thing. We don't want to do that. So, it's intended that you would take this internal map and have to pull it and stretch it here, squeeze it here, compress it here, twist it there to fit whatever geographical model you prefer, and that's totally fine. Our intent is not to push a pin in the map, our intent is to say that Moroni is south of Lehi and Nephiha, near the narrow strip of wilderness, because that's what the book says, so that students, as they're reading this book, can make better sense of the places that they're reading about. Now, let me just show you just a really, really quick overlay of the whole land as it is described in the Book of Mormon. You have the land southward and you have the land northward. Land northward is often referred to as the land of desolation. Huge civilization up there with the Jaredites. And most of the Book of Mormon story isn't covered up here until you get to the Book of Ether. Um, most of our storyline is here in the land of Zarahemla, which is north of the narrow strip of wilderness that runs from the sea west to the sea east. And between that and desolation and the narrow neck of land, as he describes it. South of that is the land of Nephi. So what happens is is Lehi lands at the land of the first inheritance, on the west of the land of Nephi. In second Nephi 5, we get the split where Nephi leaves, takes those who will follow him. They travel many days journey into the wilderness until they discover a land that they call Nephi, and they build a city and call it Nephi. You'll notice we've tried to build it up so that it looks higher, because every time you go to Nephi, you go up in the Book of Mormon. Even though it's in the south, you always go up to Nephi and down to Zarahemla. they're not looking at a satellite view of their land, they're, they're boots on the ground. So, they're, they're looking at elevations. So, apparently, Nephi is high ground, Zarahemla is low ground. So, that's just one way to keep this straight. The Nephites live here for almost, not quite, 400 years, but the Lamanites keep fighting them, fighting them, fighting them, until the Lord tells King Mosiah the first, King Benjamin's father, take all of these people that will follow you and leave. Depart out of this land. Get out of out of Nephi." So, they go north, and they travel northward, and they discover a whole new civilization. This is roughly a three-week journey between Nephi and Zarahemla. They've been living about three-week uh, journey apart from each other for nearly 400 years, and they didn't know that each other existed. Um, they discover the Mulekites, and they're kind of surprised to find out that the Mulekites left Jerusalem right before the Babylonian conquest in 587, 586 as well, similar time frame to Lehi's. They combine resources, they combine their peoples together, and King Mosiah becomes the collective king over the whole group. The Book of Mormon uh, timeline becomes easier to understand when you have these geographical references kind of in your mind, and you can fit them to whatever model you prefer, but this is just an example of how if you have some resources just for comparisons of rough distances, um, it will enhance your study of the book and allow you to focus more on the doctrine, so you're not so confused, you can focus more on Christ and, uh, and understand what he's doing with very real people, in a very real world setting. You can find this map and other uh, resources at virtualscriptures.org. It's all free, Um, and again, we're not trying to set this up as the ultimate standard. This is just a resource to help you hopefully be able to connect a few more dots and make a little more sense of your your scripture reading. Once again, virtualscriptures.org. Now let's transition into talking for a minute about one of the unsung heroes of this book, the prophet Mormon. As we begin to discuss this little teeny book called The Words of Mormon, let's not forget the the incredible job that Mormon did for us to bring all of these other stories to life. So, we, we open up the words of Mormon, this, this little teeny book that's a bridge between the small plates and the large plates, or the, the Mormon's abridgment portion of the Book of Mormon, and often people will read through this and go, oh, okay, yeah, 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 let's get to Mosiah, right? So, we can get into the, the good stuff, the doctrine. The reality is, is, Mormon is showing us some realities that are associated with the job that he has done, and quite frankly, oh we gosh. owe a huge look at I found
0: in the BYU archives oh of gosh.
1: gratitude to Mormon. I don't know what you're wait. Somebody about. is spiritually more powerful than me. Yes. <laughs> so what we have here is a replica of, and this doesn't weigh anywhere what uh, plates of these dimensions would weigh Felt heavy of to metal. Me. Yeah. <laughs> um, these are roughly six inches by six inches by eight inches, and that's what we know, based on uh, first-person accounts from the time of, of Joseph Smith, when he pulls them out of the Hill Cumorah, which tells us that anywhere from a half in some accounts to two-thirds of the plates were sealed in some way, which means our entire Book of Mormon, plus the the lost 116 pages, comes from only that much. Now, most of the time, uh, people, just in general, will visualize the plates as being something like the large plates of Nephi, and then something like this being the small plates of Nephi. The reality is, is we can go through and do the calculations based on page numbers, to realize that it's going to look a little bit different than that in reality. And by the way, we owe a debt of gratitude to Mormon for what he did. He tells us on a couple of occasions that he's not even giving us a hundredth part of what happened among the Nephites and the Lamanites what he's reading in the records. And we have a variety of of visions that people have had of Mormon's cave. And they describe some things, large, large collections of plates. They talk about plates being stacked in corners. They they talk about other things being there. What we're visualizing here is, I don't want to bore you to death, but we've taken what we did get from the Book of Mormon, added in the 116 pages, which translates to roughly 145 pages in our blue book of Mormon, and we multiplied that by a hundred. And you come up with about 15 linear feet. So, this collection right here represents about 15 linear feet worth of plates that Mormon had to work his way through in order to give us what we have in our Book of Mormon today. Hopefully, that gives you a better idea of the large collection of the plates of Nephi. Nephi, being the first writer as the king and prophet, he passes them down to the kings, and they keep adding to them these are the records of the kings Amalachi, at the end towards the end of the word or at the book of omni he says i don't have any children and i have nobody to give these these small plates to the small plates were handed down through the prophets the large plates were handed down through the kings and so you've got these two records being kept and now mormon comes along and look at this, you're in Words of Mormon, verse 3. Now I speak somewhat concerning that which I have written. For after I had made an abridgment from the plates of Nephi, down to the reign of this King Benjamin, of whom Amalekai spake, I searched among the records which had been delivered into my hands, and I found these plates, which contained this small account of the prophets from Jacob, Down to the reign of this King Benjamin, and also many of the words of Nephi. So, here's Mormon, he's been doing an abridgment, starting with Lehi, that's why we call it the Book of Lehi that's lost, because he's the first one that Nephi recorded on plates, and then his own records, the big record, the large plate record, and he's passed them down, And, and Mormon has worked his way through all of that abridgment process, and he comes down to the time of King Benjamin, and he finds this really small Record among the plates, the large collection of plates. He finds the small plates, and he starts reading. And he says, "Wow, this is neat. It's got Jacob on it, the prophet Jacob, and others." And then watch what happens. Uh, The plates, the things which are written upon these plates, in verse four, they pleased Mormon. And then in verse 5, wherefore I chose those things to finish my record upon them, which remainder of my record I shall take from the plates of Nephi, and I cannot write the hundredth part of the things of my people. So it's fascinating to me that it seems that what Mormon's doing is he's abridging, 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 abridging. He finds that and he says, Oh, I'm gonna finish my record. He doesn't seem to abridge that. Everything in first Nephi through Omni is first person, I, Nephi, I, Jacob, I, Enos, I, Jeremiah, Omni, I, Chemish, I, Amalekai. Mormon doesn't seem to be touching that, he seems to simply be putting it with his record, this small uh, set of plates that are about maybe a half inch to three-eighths inch, somewhere in there, in thickness. So, when the prophets say, these plates are small, they're they're telling you the truth, They're, they're not very big compared to the other records. And so, now look at verse 7. Why is Mormon including those plates? I do this for a wise purpose, for thus it whispereth me according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord which is in me. And now I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come, wherefore he worketh in me to do according to his will. It seems that the Lord didn't tell Mormon about the lost 116 pages in 1828. 1829 timeframe, and it doesn't seem that God even told Nephi why he needed to make a second set of plates after he had gone to the work of doing the first set. So, Nephi does all of this writing, and these kings do all these writing, Mormon does all this abridging, Joseph does all this translating, and none of that goes live, because we lose 116 pages representing Mormon's abridgment of the large collection of the plates of Nephi. But thankfully, God gives us what, in my opinion, is a better version of those same years, minus a little bit. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the lesson uh, next week on Mosiah one. Um, the point is, God knows the future. He knows what to have you do in in 550 BC in preparation for things that are going to happen in 19, or sorry, 1828. Uh, um, that gives us a pretty firm foundation for our faith, to trust that God knows what he's doing, and uh, I think we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Mormon. The amount of work he went to, to give us what he did, knowing that we've even lost a lot of his abridgment, Um, but he, he is the one who gives voice to all of these other prophets, and he followed that prompting to grab those small plates, and include them in the record even though he didn't know why. He trusted that God knew why, so he was going to follow that prompting. I want to, I want to be more like that in my life. And by the way, um, we often talk about uh, wanting to be like or emulate people. Ultimately, we want to be like the Savior. We want to be like our, our Heavenly Father. We want to be, we, we don't often say this, but I also want to be more like the Holy Ghost. Mormon, for me, represents this idea of becoming, in he's almost invisible. He's doing all of this amazing work, and people don't walk away going, wow, Mormon, that was amazing. And yet, God's working through him to glorify Christ and glorify God, um, kind of like what the Holy Ghost does. And uh, I want to be more like that, have people recognize God more completely, without drawing attention to the lens or the instrument through which that's being revealed. Again, you can get this resource at uh, virtualscriptures.org. Big thanks to Ethan Hunsaker for originally making it, and then Brian Platimony and a couple of other really talented students there at Brigham Young University that I've hired to help, help us build this, this
0: cave, this world. And this has been a lot of work. Tyler and I have been at this with a whole group of people for uh, many years, almost a decade in some cases, and I just think about Mormon, of essentially working on his own. Well, he wasn't. He was working with the Spirit of the Lord. So, Book of Mormon Central and Virtual Scriptures Group, we are friends, we collaborate together, and so we just want to thank you for being part of this learning community. We love the scriptures, we love the gospel, really love you guys, appreciate your enthusiasm. It's fun to read your questions and encouragement in the comment area. We want to remind you, this is brought to you by Book of Mormon Central, and find lots of other resources on BookOfMormonCentral.org. And remember, lots of also, uh, also a lot of great supplemental resources in our scripture app called Scripture Plus. And finally, we want to just encourage you to remember that the Book of Mormon was brought forth for our day. And so, as you're reading, sure, we've talked about all sorts of interesting things, but ask yourself, why did God preserve this record for me for right now? How can I apply what I'm hearing from God today in my own life? And as you do that, you will find God's presence. And hopefully it won't be a no signal detected where the spirit's not there. But as you open the scriptures, the signal will be detected and you'll feel his love. So go forth, spread light, and spread goodness, and we'll see you again next week.